0: In, in in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter four. We're beginning in verse twelve today. Matthew four verse twelve. This is God's word. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we come now asking that you would open our hearts that we might see from it all that you intend. Speak your word to us today and give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, where we live gives us the opportunity, the privilege to see the beauty of God's creation in many different ways around us. And one of the benefits of being on an eastern shore, if you get up that early, is that you can enjoy these amazing sunrises. I enjoy all the pictures that you guys post of them. More of a sunset kind of guy, you know. (laughs) But if you've ever been at the, particularly at the beach, you know, where the, you know, the whole horizon's in front of you, and you, you know that when the sun begins to come up, the, the light grows and grows before you ever see the sun. There's a sense of the, the sky continually changing, the colors change, the appearance changes. And then as the sun breaks the horizon, the light becomes more intense and more intense. And the way things looked by the time the sun comes up looks very different from how it appeared beforehand. If you've ever been uh, at a, a beach that you didn't know what things looked like, your, your mind can even play tricks. You don't even have to be at the beach for this to happen. As the light grows, your mind can play tricks on you so that by the time the sun does come up, the way things appear uh, are different than what you might have thought as the sun was creeping up. Uh, clouds on the horizon you thought were mountains or vice versa and other things that appear Uh, There's just something about what the light does to transform how we perceive things. Well, in Matthew's gospel, that is what has been happening, is that the dawn has begun with the birth of Christ. And now as Christ begins his ministry, the light has fully risen. The sun is above the horizon. In his ministry, we begin to see the full light that has dawned appearing in all of its glory as Jesus begins his ministry. That is the, the picture that Matthew uses, and he's referring to the prophecy given in Isaiah that, uh, that, that Christ fulfills in his coming. We've already picked up on the fact that Matthew's that's, this is one of his big things. He wants us to see, his readers to see, how Jesus fulfills prophecy, that Jesus is the Messiah. So this is another example using the passage from Isaiah. Light, however, is not something that's unique as a metaphor to this particular passage. It's used th- throughout Scripture along with darkness as instruction to help us understand our spiritual state. In Ephesians 5, verse 8, we read, "...for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." In Colossians 1:13, "...he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." So our spiritual state before salvation is one of darkness. We, we can't see. We can't understand the light. We don't perceive. We don't uh, understand. We're opposed to it. That's what Jesus said in John 3. He said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So that is, until God intervenes, breathing new life into us, the darkness is where we remain. Jesus has come as the light of the world, and upon his arrival, that light began to permeate through his ministry, through his teaching, as we begin to see in this passage, In the coming of his kingdom on earth, we see the arrival of this great light. Isaiah says, on them, a light has dawned. I mentioned that his light shines through his teaching, through his preaching, through miracles, through his acts of mercy. Later, through his redemptive work on the cross, it becomes brighter and brighter. The light increases and increases, much like the dawning sun, so that those who are his are drawn to him. And we see in this passage the beginning of that as well as his first disciples are called. So look now in verse 12 as Matthew begins to set the stage of Jesus moving from his hometown of Nazareth to this town known as Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee. This town was one that was maybe unlikely, uh, for Jesus to serve in his ministry. Many would have expected him to serve in Jerusalem. That would have been what the religious people certainly would have had in mind. The impetus for the move, Matthew tells us, is that he got news that John the Baptist had been arrested. Now he doesn't tell us why that was a reason, but we can kind of get the inference that's being made here in the same way that Joseph uh, received news of Herod. He received news of Archelaus and uh, providentially, God used these things through wisdom to guide him, to lead his family to safety. It certainly was not fear that motivated Jesus to leave Nazareth and go to Galilee. We never see that in Jesus. In fact, he would continually say when threats came that he, as he would move on sometimes just walking out of crowds, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Yet when his time came, he didn't walk away. He didn't run in fear he simply knew that his time had not yet come, and so in wisdom he moves his and begins his ministry in Galilee. But as the text unfolds, we see that it's more than simply that, because the Father is sovereignly orchestrating all of these events to fulfill the prophecy that was spoken of about the Messiah by Isaiah. So Galilee is this uh, region uh, north of Jerusalem. At this time, it was a kind of a bustling collection of. Villages, historians tell us that many of the villages had 15,000 people or more, so it was very densely populated. It was diversely populated people from all over. Because of the highway systems, there were trade routes through this area. People could come and go and settle in this area. Again, this is in contrast to what one might expect, that Jesus would go to Jerusalem to conduct his ministry. No, instead he goes to what might be considered the outskirts, the sticks, the sticks the fringes, because that's how Galilee was seen. Much like Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? Galilee is seen in a similar way. And if you've ever lived in the fringes or like me, if you're from the fringes, you know the derogatory statements that can come from being from a certain town or a certain village. This is the way Galilee was perceived. So as we've seen in Matthew's gospel, he points us to the prophecy and how Jesus fulfills it. This comes from Isaiah chapter 9. He quotes it there, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So he references the two tribes by name, Zebulun and Naphtali, to indicate the general area of which Jesus begins his ministry. You can go, not now, later, to Joshua chapter 18 and 19 and see how all the tribes were allotted or apportioned land. Uh, They were given instruction what they were to possess. You may have a a study Bible with the maps in the back. Again, look at it later. Uh, but it will visualize, if you're more like me, I like the visualization. I like to see it with my eyes. And there's uh, often maps in the back of study Bibles that will show you how the land was apportioned. And you'll see Zebulun and Ephtali right up there next to the Sea of Galilee. So Isaiah uses these two tribes to signal this general area north, but it's much bigger than this area proper. That wasn't the point of his message. It was the general area because he adds to that description, Zebulun and Naphtali, these descriptors, the way of the sea, which would have been the land all the way to the west toward the uh, the Mediterranean Sea, and then beyond the Jordan all the way to the east. Galilee of the Gentiles, he calls this. So, think of that entire northern Palestinian region, uh, lower modern-day Syria, upper uh, uh, northern part of of modern-day Jordan, all the way over to Lebanon, and and there was this whole area that was considered Galilee, and it was called uh, by Isaiah here, Galilee of the Gentiles. It signals something about the land, that it was diverse, not because simply because of the trade routes. That was part of the reason why it was so diverse. People could come and go and move and settle into this place. But it was also diverse in part because the people had not driven out the pagan nations that lived there when they came into the land, which God had specifically instructed them to do, and we understand the reason why. In Judges, the first chapter we see in verses 30 and 33, both Zebulun and Naphtali called out for failing to do this. So part of the diversity that's here is this very reason that they failed to do what God told them to do. This is where Jesus chose to center His ministry. This is where Jesus chose to begin to launch, to spend the, the, the majority of His ministry years here in this particular area. Something very different than what the religious people would have expected. Yet while we know that the gospel came first to the Jews it was also for the Gentiles. That wasn't an add-on. God didn't change his mind. It wasn't an addition. It wasn't a 2.0. It wasn't a plan B. This was God's plan from the very beginning that the gospel was for all nations, all peoples, because everyone dwells in darkness. Everyone who lives on earth lives in the shadow of death that the gospel or the kingdom of God was for the whole world, we can go all the way back to Genesis and see in Genesis 12 when God called Abraham and said to him, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We could trace that thread all the way through the scriptures and we see it even more recently uh, at the the birth of Jesus when his parents brought him to the temple for the act of purification in Luke chapter 2. Simeon, Upon seeing the infant Jesus prayed, "Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your to your people Israel." So from Genesis to the opening of the Gospels, we see the message of the good news was for all peoples, all nations. And that is what Galilee represents. In a sense, Galilee represents the whole world. And so Jesus moves to Galilee to accomplish this work, to fulfill this prophecy mentioned in Isaiah, so that we might know that he is the Messiah. And then in verse 17, Matthew tells us the message that he began at this point to preach. And you might note that it's the same exact word-for-word message that we were told John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in verse 17. So we looked at this previously. We won't dive as deep back into it. Let me just tell you by way of reminder what the message meant. Repent was a call to conversion. It was a call not simply to confession, but it was a call to turn from sin and turn toward God in faith. And repent, although we might think this was a new thing with John the Baptist and Jesus wasn't, you can go back in your Bibles and see the, the, the call to God's people to return to him over, the word repent used over and over again. This wasn't a new message. Of course, we understand the history of the people of God and why this particular message was a constant need. It's a need, needed message for us in our own day that we would walk in repentance and faith, but in particular, this message was necessary because of the arrival of the kingdom, and that's, that's the reason given. Repent for or because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or the kingdom, all three terms used synonymously throughout the Gospels, represents God's sovereign rule on earth as it is in heaven. Something, however, was, unchanging, or something was changing or unfolding, rather, With the arrival of Jesus, the kingdom of God was coming in a unique way in him. We see this not only in his teaching, but also in his healing. That the effects of sin were beginning to be plowed up, beginning to become uh, uprooted. That uh, the beginning of healing and restoration would break through the scorched earth. And then the final blow would come on the cross and the subsequent resurrection, bringing the kingdom of our God into full light with Jesus granted the inheritance of nations. So while the kingdom has come, yet we also understand the tension. We often say this, it's both now and not yet. The kingdom has come, and yet it's not been consummated, not fully realized. It is here now, and yet we wait. We wait for the return of Christ when the final and full healing of God's people and the creation will come. There's another component, however, to the message that the kingdom has arrived, and that is the message of judgment. While the message of the gospel is indeed good news, it includes with it something about judgment as well. That is, the rejection of the gospel means that you will take upon yourself the just judgment for your own sins. Anyone who rejects God will reap the just rewards of their actions. That is why there's the call to repent, turn from your sin, turn to God in Christ. Now, along with the message of the kingdom, Jesus also begins recruiting disciples to follow him. With the terminology of the kingdom, we might think that Jesus would be recruiting knights or soldiers or something more along the lights of what we think of in a kingdom. Jesus did not come, however, with a sword. He will return with one in hand. But He did not come with one in hand, and we do not conquer in his name with the sword through such crusades. The followers of Christ conquer through the gospel. It is a transformative work that the gospel does. We don't do it. We get to witness it. We get to see it as we proclaim the gospel. We see the transformation that it accomplishes. But the gospel, we have to remember, is the good news of peace. It is a message of peace. It's what Ephesians 6.15 tells us. Think in mind there, the context in Ephesians 6, right, talking about spiritual warfare, the armor of God, where we might think the most likely nature to talk about fighting and force and power would be, there, in that context, it is called the gospel of peace. James, who describes the gospel as a harvest of righteousness, if you think of what is righteousness, how is righteousness produced, righteousness comes by faith clearly talking about the gospel here, a harvest of righteousness. It says a harvest of righteousness in James 3.18 is sown in peace by those who make peace. We don't like this. We like to do things by force, by power. We want to prove our position or our stance. But the beauty of the gospel is found in the grace of the gospel, that it is all a gift of God. We're all beggars telling other beggars where to find food. We're not people who figured it out, people who were just a little better, a little smarter, who got it all. It's not by anything that we have accomplished. It's not by our good intentions. It's not by our ingenuity. It's not by our determination. It's not by our forcefulness. It is a gift of God. By His grace, we have been reconciled to Him nothing we brought to the table, and now we are called on to call others to be reconciled by the same grace to God through Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus is not recruiting soldiers or knights in the worldly understanding of such terms. He is recruiting disciples, those who would be students, those who would follow him. In the historical setting of Jesus' day, the disciples, uh, Jesus wasn't the only one to have disciples. We saw John the Baptist had disciples. Other rabbis had disciples. And the means of teaching was literally... Through the context of life, they followed their disciple. They learned while following. They learned along the way. So in verse 18, we see Jesus call these two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter and Andrew, while walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're uh, using their nets. They're cast, there's cast nets. They throw them out to capture the fish and draw them in. And so Jesus says to them, I'm going to make you fishers of men gives them this kind of mini parable, this little metaphor that they, as fishermen, could easily understand what he was calling them to. Every culture, every period of history, there is a battle for the souls of people. There is a battle to capture the hearts of people. Everyone's heart worships something or someone or is aligned with some interest. In our world today, it may be something in popular culture, singer, a band, an actor, an actress, sports figure. It may be something in the political realm. It may be just some cause or concern that we get caught up in. And it isn't just young people who are caught in the nets of these things. All of us are vulnerable. All of our hearts can be captured by something. And the way that we can figure out what our hearts have been captured by is what we think about most, what we seek out more of, and what we speak about the most. Who or what has captured your heart will dominate your thoughts, your attitudes, and your actions. So Jesus comes to these fishermen to capture their hearts. And he says, follow me. It's a command and it's an invitation. And we could read it in either way. And depending on maybe our personality or how we were taught, we might hear this as this harsh command. Uh, We might hear this as this soft invitation. It was both. It was both an invitation to follow him. They weren't robots. But at the same time, he is king and the king calls. And when the king calls, we come. And it says in verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then another set of brothers, James and John, follow suit when Jesus calls to them. They're in the boat mending their nets. And Matthew uses the same word, immediately. They follow him to show the weightiness of their decision. They didn't wait to get their affairs in order. They didn't wait to make plans. They didn't wait to get everything lined up. They simply followed. Now, it's worth pausing here to mention a few notes about both of these calls. Each of the gospel writers records things from their own perspective and so forth. And so we have duplicate reports of some of the same events, and sometimes we can fill those in. And at times, I'll go to other gospels and maybe mention other aspects of an event I'm going to try not to do that too much just for the sake of time, but in this case, I think it's worth noting that this wasn't the first encounter that these men had with Jesus. Uh, This was not a stranger walking up to other strangers, calling them, follow me, and they came. Uh, That's maybe the more dramatic version. But we know from uh, Mark and Luke's Gospels, John's Gospel, uh, that Jesus had encounters at least with Peter and uh, likely with John uh, John never referred to himself by name in his gospel. He would always say, like, another disciple or whatever, and then something figure it out, that was John. And so, uh, But it was likely that they all, they all knew Jesus through the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, they all understood who he was. He was there present. And so this wasn't maybe as dramatic as we think that it was. But it was at this point that he calls them to come and follow me, and it was at this point, knowing who he was and what he was calling that they left behind their vocations, their jobs, and followed him. The other thing that may cause us concern is that James and John uh, left their father. And in this account, it just says that. It just says they left their father and followed Jesus. But in Mark's gospel, we find out that they left their father with his hired hands, that Zebedee had a whole business, a family business. He had staff, and that the brothers were not leaving their father destitute or abandoned in his work. Uh, yet, with both of these clarifications, this was still a, bit, still a big deal. I'm not trying to take away the weightiness of it, just kind of fill in some of the holes that the, they, they did consider their father, um, that they did know Jesus beforehand. But still, the call was serious. It involved great sacrifice. It was life-altering, not only for these men, but for their families as well. And so the question arises, are we willing each and every day to leave behind houses and money and land to continually follow the king who calls. In verses 23 to 25, we get a snapshot of what the ministry of Jesus looked like as it began to unfold that first year. We're told he went throughout all Galilee. So Jesus moved around quite a bit, and he did three things primarily, Matthew points out. Teaching, proclaiming the gospel, and healing. So here, Matthew distinguishes between teaching and preaching, and there is a difference all preaching should include some teaching. There should be some instruction. Uh, but I think that we would not say that teaching is preaching, although we've probably all had a teacher who seemed to preach whatever was their topic that they were an, an evangelist for. But preaching is proclaiming or announcing, or to use an older wor- word, heralding, right? It is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, it is announcing and describing with both heartfelt delivery and intention to move people, right? It isn't a a bland call. It's It's not just handing out information. There is passion, or should be. Yet, preaching should never be manipulative. I would argue that biblical preaching should never seek the interest of the preacher. That would include manipulation, but it would also include vindictiveness, pettiness, gossip, or some kind of personal agenda. I would go further to say that preaching should not seek to be entertaining. That is, the motive should not be to entertain, yet preaching should not seek to be boring either. I said a story at Peter's funeral on Friday about when I my last visit with him. He was fairly quiet in the bed. Kathy and I were visiting together. And she was telling me that this, this was on a Wednesday. It was the Wednesday before he died, a week before he died. She said the previous Sunday, she said that he, he was able to go to church. They were able to get him in a wheelchair and take him to church, and she was excited about that. She leaned in. She goes, but he slept most of the time. And from the silence, Peter pipes up. I found another pastor who could put me to sleep. <laughs> so preaching is not supposed to be boring, so appreciated Peter's honesty. Preaching is not supposed to be boring. It's not supposed to be entertaining either. There may be at times where preaching is boring and you as the listener need to apply diligence to listen. There may be at times where we laugh in a sermon. Preaching does entertain us. It's not intended to be boring, but it doesn't seek to be either. The teaching that Jesus did was primarily, it says, in synagogues. This was normal. It was ordinary for people to teach in synagogues, although he certainly taught in other ways. We see this with his disciples along the way through life in the context as they sat, as they rose, as they walked along the way. Uh, yet the teaching of Jesus, while teaching in synagogues was an ordinary thing, a daily thing at the synagogues, Jesus' teaching was not ordinary. Because he came unfolding this message of the kingdom that has now arrived. The kingdom of heaven is here. And he began explaining how all the prophecies, all of these things that the, the Jewish people had read about for years and years and years, how he was the fulfillment of these prophecies. Teaching is instructive. That is, it offers new or additional information, but it is also corrective. It clarifies misunderstood information. And we see in the teaching of Jesus that he did both. The healing was the third component. I think this was beyond our comprehension. The fact of what Christ did in healing is really beyond what we can understand. One of the things that's clear from Matthew's description is that it was vast. He went all over. All kinds of people with all kinds of ailments came to him. But it was also life-changing. See, the reason I think we can't comprehend it is... Basic medical care is so available to us that we don't, it's not life changing to go to a doctor and to get a, a wound bandaged or to get some medicine for pain or to get an antibiotic to get over a sinus infection or whatever. It's just kind of ordinary. We, we, we just kind of expect it. Uh, we take it for granted. But in this day and time, both the understanding of medical care, which was almost non existent compared to modern day med- medicine, But it was certainly unattainable by the ordinary person. And again, Galilee represents the sticks. These would have been more and more people that did not have means. And so they lived with their sicknesses. They lived with their pain. They lived with many things that we might consider mundane. And so for Jesus to come and heal all of these things was life-altering, life-changing. The healing was both physical and spiritual. Now, we do know that at this time in history, there was an understanding that some things that we now know are physiological were attributed to demon possession, uh, things that can be uh, strictly physiological. But we see Jesus do both. We don't have to relegate that category away. Jesus clearly cast out demons. He was demonstrating his power as the king who has come, the power to speak over physical bodies and bring... Healing, restoration to physical bodies, as well as over the spiritual realm, to tell demons to flee, and they fled. This was his power on display in this ministry that he began here threefold ministry of Jesus, teaching, preaching, and healing. This was the unfolding of the kingdom to come. So the kingdom of God came with the explanation of the nature of the kingdom. It came with the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom, and it came with power displayed through the healing of bodies and domination of the spiritual realm of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of darkness. That is what we see here in the ministry of Jesus unfolding. This preaching and teaching, and especially the miraculous signs, the healings, work to draw people to himself so it says that his fame spread throughout the entire region but Jesus didn't come simply to be well known Jesus came as the light of the world to shine for we who have walked in darkness who have lived in the shadow of death he came as the light to overcome the darkness that we might be saved out of it that we might be delivered from death or from the grave The table that is set before us is the table of the Lord. It is the table of his kingdom. And this meal declares that the king has come, bringing the kingdom with him. His redemptive work is finished. He is now making all things new. And the end result will be realized upon his return. So in this meal, we see a testament of his sacrificial death in our place, that he was crushed, His blood was poured out for us. Yet not only do we proclaim and remember his death in this meal, but he comes to us feeding us spiritually through this means of grace. He nourishes us in the truth that our sins are forgiven. He feeds our souls with the knowledge that we are the children of God. He satiates our desires in the reality that no one And no thing can separate us from him. So for all who are by faith, come to the table. Come with great expectation that he will meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Come to him that your emptiness may be filled. Come to him that your heart may be cleansed and your mind renewed. Come to him that your soul may be captured by his perfect love. Cast out fear by his peace that is beyond all understanding, and by his lavish grace that knows no bounds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, as the light of the world to overcome the darkness. Lord, we couldn't do it. We were dead in our trespasses and sins we couldn't see. My prayer is today, Lord, for anyone that is in that state, that you would open their eyes to see that Jesus is the light of the world, the Savior who has come and done for us what we could not do for ourselves by dying for our sins, by obeying perfectly the law in our place, has now redeemed us back from the curse of the law, sin and death. Lord, we thank you for what Jesus has overcome. And as we come now to the table, would you cause our hearts to be made glad for all that is ours in him, Perfect love that casts out fear. Peace that is beyond understanding. Absolute, steady assurance that nothing can separate us from you. Would you strengthen our hearts and make us glad in this today, we pray in Jesus' name.